0: Money FM 89.3 Best of Drive Time
1: It's time now for a regional roundup where we take a look at headlines coming out of the Southeast Asia region. Uh, we're talking about ASEAN risking uh, losing its grip on the Myanmar crisis to a heat wave hitting the region. Helping me out is Nicholas Fang, Managing Director, Black Dot and Director for Security and Global Affairs Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, sir. How are you?
0: I'm good, buddy. Well, it's the first time we're talking in the afternoon, I think.
1: It is. Are you still in Hong Kong, by the way?
0: No, no. I was just there for a couple of days, back on Sunday.
1: Yeah, I think you were there for a a competition. Yes, this is uh, is the way life should be. Even in your 40s, continue to compete. Uh, But one competition we hope would stop is uh, this unfortunate uh, situation where the Myanmar crisis is concerned. So I did tease, you know, is ASEAN sort of risking uh, losing its grip on this crisis? They've been a bit quiet about it. Lately, from your perspective, is that that loosening of grip? Is that that risk that it's loosening its grip? Well,
0: that, that's actually a, an interesting way to frame the conversation because most people would usually point to ASEAN uh, and the way it deals with crisis among its internal members as being something uh, slightly ineffective. I think that right. would be a safe way to put it <laughs> because as you, you know, we've, talk, we've talked about this in the past, you know, ASEAN has a bad rap because uh, they, they, they they sort of, decide things and move things along based on 100% consensus. Not just consensus, majority consensus, but 100% consensus. So if one person does not agree for something to be done, then nothing can be done. Okay. At the same time, they also have this policy of non-interference with, uh, you know, you know, sovereign states, individual sovereign state, member states, uh, which clearly will look like what's happening in Myanmar. So it's not surprising that uh, ASEAN has actually sort of said publicly that they would appreciate, you know, external help on this particular issue. The crisis in Myanmar is is certainly looking... um very very uh, dire, especially for Myanmar citizens. Okay. Uh, we've been hearing all these reports about you know you know killings and, and, and fairly indiscriminate violence as well. Mm. So you know to to point to it and say that things are a little bit out of control, I don't think that is unfair to say. Now the question is whether ASEAN is losing its grip on it. I think mm. there was a lot of interest when Indonesia Indonesia took over the the chair of uh, ASEAN you know a few months ago. Yeah. All the countries in ASEAN, Indonesia and Malaysia have. Been fairly vocal, fairly active, uh, and, and very strongly uh, opinionated on the issues, uh, you know, happening in Myanmar. And there was quite a lot of hope that Indonesia as chair would actually, you know, turn the tide when it comes to, to the situation in, in Myanmar. And some people are already saying a little bit disappointing, given that we haven't actually seen any meaningful uh, change. Okay. One way of putting it is that Indonesia has only been under the chair for a few months. So, you know, it's a bit too early. The other way to look at it is that <clears throat> because it's a revolving chair every year, they've only got about, you know, a few months left before, eight months left, I think, uh, before they, they leave as chair. And if it fails to come up with a policy, then the entire sort of ASEAN driven response could crumble when it moves, when the chairmanship moves over uh, to the next chair next year. So, you know, there's, there's some concern for sure. I guess. Potentially what might be useful is to ask ourselves, what more could other countries do to help the situation? Um, there's been some observers who said that countries like Australia, potentially a close friend of ASEAN, but at the same time not bound by those rules of non intervention and, and the 100% consensus uh, that, we, that I just mentioned, could actually put a bit of pressure to see how things could improve as well. So. You know, I I, I think it's maybe a little bit premature to say that ASEAN has lost control of the situation in Myanmar, uh, but it certainly doesn't have, you know, a good handle on how things are going right now
1: quite interesting you mentioned you know when uh, indonesia passes the baton right because uh, that's going to uh, go to lao in 2024 the ASEAN chairmanship uh, we really haven't heard from them with regard to the myanmar situation so uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting viewpoint that you bring up uh, i am curious though with regard to the former un secretary general ban kim moon who recently made a visit to myanmar uh, do you think that's going to do any good has that done any good to the situation um, I mean, I think there was quite a lot of uh, you know
0: optimism when when we heard that uh, Ban Ki moon was going uh, to do in his own words all he can uh, for peace in Myanmar. You know, and he's calling for the end of violence and establishing of a peaceful, democratic and legitimate government. Now, you've seen how the, the, the military government government in Myanmar has responded to the uh, five-point peace plan put together by ASEAN, uh, which does encapsulate a lot of these ideas. You know, it, it's hard to be very optimistic. Given okay. that not much has been done, you know, at all, uh, when it comes to um, uh, addressing the requirements of the of the Five Point Peace Plan, so you know, when you have an international uh, figure like Ban Ki Moon, you know, former UN sec General, and you know, recognized as one of the senior former world leaders, there would be the hope that there would be some constructive movement within Myanmar. Especially, he was actually visiting at the invitation of the military, so I think that that was a good sign. But you know, he 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 has put out some. Calls that don't sound entirely new, the ideas that he was calling for, peace, prosperity, freedom for the Myanmar people. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think it, it remains to be seen whether that kind of soft uh, encouragement or, or expectations um, can be paired up with, with anything more more concrete that would make the military government there sit up and take note. Right now, I don't see that. You know, if you're talking about carrots and sticks, mm. I can see you know, kind of encouragement, but not much in a stick way.
1: Okay. Uh, Let's move on to talk about Indonesia, where the ruling Indonesian Democratic Party of Struggle has declared Central Java Governor Ganja Pranowo its presidential candidate for next year's general election. What do we know about Mr. Pranowo so far? Uh, And why do you think he was the ideal candidate?
0: Uh, yeah, so I mean, we heard this uh, just just recently uh, when uh, the uh, PDIP, the Democratic Party of Struggle, PDIP, Chairman Nagwati, so kind of three last week, sort of um, announced that Governor uh, Ganja is going to take over. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it gives a bit more clarity. To the the presidential race now we know that there are three clear candidates. Uh, incumbent Indonesian leader President Widodo has also come out to endorse the ganja, saying that you know he's he's, he's a good candidate. And uh, I think you know, in terms of clarity, uh, all that is is, is uh, it's good for for stability. And now I guess we wait to hear who are uh, the vice presidential. It's because it usually has to be a president and VP uh, ticket that, that we yeah. will see and, and be able to assess. But Mr Ganja is up against you know, Defence Minister uh, Prabowo Subianto yeah. and former Jakarta Governor uh, Anis Baswedan himself. So I think it's going to be uh, pretty interesting to see uh, how this shapes up. Of course, we have a bit more time. Now, when you ask what we know about Mr Ganja, you know, he's 54 years old and um, I'm not sure how, how familiar everyone is but he's definitely struggling to make up for some damage uh, to his own standing, uh, you know, among Indonesians. Because uh, if you recall, uh, earlier, uh, Indonesia and Jakarta, uh, Central Java in particular, rejected hosting the 2023 FIFA Youth World Cup yes. uh, football competition yes. in Central Java. And Mr. Ganja was, was, was uh, active in that decision um, because Israel was going to be taking part in that tournament. Yeah. So it so basically said, you know, Central Java, one of the designated venues, we're not going to host the tournament if Israel's is going to play. So, um, you know, his, his view wasn't his alone. It echoed that of, uh, you know, his party, Kata, uh Bali Provincial Governor, Hawaiian Costa, other conservative groups, you know, which, which um, uh, all share the same views. Um, and then Indonesia lost the hosting rights to the entire tournament, right? Which was Mm. was embarrassing for for the country and um, the sport of football in Indonesia as as well. So after this, Mr. Gandhia was previously ranked first in popularity. After this uh, tournament issue, he was actually overtaken by Mr. Prabowo, while Anis remained in third place as well. So, you know, I think it's going to be a slightly uphill battle. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think his endorsement by Megawati and endorsement by President Widodo would definitely put him in a slightly better position. But it's going to be an uphill climb for him in the, in the next few months ahead. So we'll be looking at how he's going to sort it out, but also at the same time uh, who his uh, vice presidential uh, partner is likely to be. So you know, it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up, and once we have those, all the information, we'll be able to to make a, a clearer picture of how the the race is going to shape up. So.
1: Yeah, some analysts saying that it might boil down to a fight between the VP candidates. But in the interest of time, uh, Nicholas, I, I want to turn our attention uh, to a more economic conversation where Malaysia is concerned. There are Prime Minister Datuk Seri Anwar Ibrahim reiterating the country's commitment to continue working closely with Turkey eh, and strengthening the bilateral ties between the two countries. Uh, Nicholas, my question is, from an economic standpoint, what kind of untapped potential and opportunities exist between Malaysia and Turkey? Well,
0: oh, I think the opportunities are significant. And that's the reason why the two, two countries have, you know, for, for quite a long time now be, be calling for deeper bilateral relationships. Uh, last year there was a there was an announcement that the bilateral relationships were being advanced from the level of strategic to comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, the the discussions in terms of the relationship centers around various fields such as the economy, investments, trade um, Defence, industry, technology, health, education and communication. So Malaysia is already Turkey's largest trade partner in the ASEAN region. Mm. Um, and despite you know, COVID going on for the past few years, the trade volume between the two countries in 2021 actually increased by 50%. Uh, and exceeded the three point five billion US dollar level. So you know it's it's definitely a very strong relationship, and the countries are now you know definitely looking to collaborate and cooperate uh, on the challenges that that are matter today: food security, energy, environment, climate change, and uh, you know the two countries being so closely aligned can. Definitely share a lot of similar uh, views on things like the Rohingya crisis, mm-hmm. Islamophobia, mm-hmm. Uh, issues that are closely related to the Islamic world, of which both countries are significant uh, leading nations. Mm-hmm. So, I think uh, in terms of what this means for for Malaysia and Turkey, of course, it's a definitely positive synergistic bilateral relationship, and for Malaysia as a part of the ASEAN, I think potentially we could see yet another partner for one of the member states and the spillover benefits that could could impact the rest of ASEAN as well. So, you know, it's definitely, I think as we look at this The world today, where countries are turning more inwards, we're seeing more, you know, sort of nationalist pressures. Yeah. When we hear of bilateral, multilateral engagements deepening, I think it's only a good thing.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, And uh, final issue, and I do wonder if you've experienced this uh, while you've been on your travels recently around the region. uh, The heat wave here in Asia, 45 degrees Celsius, scorching much of Southeast Asia. I know there were a couple of days where my air condition spoiled. I wanted to kill myself, Nicholas. I mean, So, so, oh gosh, I am that. I never realized I was that spoiled, you know. Like, oh my God, I had to put two fans. Um, So, this is an interesting question. Like, weather like this, right? This kind of heat wave. Mm does it impact markets? Do, do we generally observe anything there?
0: Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody has really tracked the in- impact on say, economic behaviour. Okay. Uh, as you know, Singapore is famous for being the air-conditioned nation. <laughs> right? Our founding leaders uh, decided in their wisdom early on that you know when things get too hot and if people have to have a siesta or things like that, that's going to impact productivity for yeah, sure. Yeah. So we're an air-conditioned nation, we've got two climates indoors and outdoors. Um, but I, I I think I think one of the things everybody's you know seeing people doing funky things. They're trying to fry eggs, you know, just using the heat of the oh, sun. Goodness. um incredible of the health impact people dying of heat stroke, yeah, and, yeah. And especially the elderly and the vulnerable. So inequality gets exacerbated when we see extreme weather wow. like this. But I think the issue, and, and we are all bracing for it to get worse, right? Yeah. There's the El Nino uh, potential this year. Be I mean, 2023 could be 2024, but most people are expecting 2023. When it could actually even worse. Worse than this forty-five degree craziness, and and it is a stark reminder for all of us that you know a lot of this can be attributed to climate change mm. and to human behavior uh, mm. created problems, yes. whether it's emissions or, or contributions to, to to rising temperatures around the world. So you know, I think the, the the stuff that's more worrying, but hopefully, what it reminds us is that we all really should do our part to try to to mitigate the impact of climate change, mm. um, and, and you. Now, this is stuff that you guys have been covering on a consistent basis critically we we all need to ask ourselves what can we do to to keep temperature rises to under 1.5 degrees or i don't even know whether it's target anymore but yeah if you look at the way temperatures are today it's it's pretty scary man
1: yeah yeah moments like these uh, i'm glad uh, we didn't own a water heater when uh, i was much younger so i'm used to bathing in cold water <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very oh, good. gosh. It's true. Nicholas Fang, Managing Director, Black Dot, and Director for Security and Global Affairs for Singapore Institute of International Affairs, on the line with me. Nicholas, as always, I appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Wednesday evening.
0: Thank you for chatting. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.